passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's, uh, it's good to be with you uh, this morning as we, as we open God's Word. Um, and uh, this morning, we're going to be continuing in the book of Jude. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to the book of Jude, the second to last book of the Bible. And as you're doing that, I just want to um, talk a little bit, um, and, and it's providential, that uh, that last song that we just sang talks about um, remembering the God who was, the God who is, the God who evermore will be. And our text this morning, starting in uh, verse 5 of the book of Jude, talks about the fact that we are to remember what God is like or what God was doing in the past so that we can be confident about how God is going to be at work today as well. And there are consequences for not remembering certain things. And of course, those consequences are going to vary based off of uh, what it is that you forget. And so, uh, for example, if I, if I forget where I put my glasses, it's, uh, it's not a terribly big deal. But if I forget my wife's birthday, um, it's a little bit more of a big deal. Our, our family, we have this uh, memory game that we play with our kids. Um, it's, I don't even remember what it's called. But it has these wooden penguins. Uh, I didn't mean to say that, but... Wow, that was uh, ironic. Uh, <laughs> we have this memory game with these wooden penguins and these wooden eggs, and you're supposed to pull a penguin off of the egg, and there's matching colors of eggs. Uh, our kids really enjoy it. Um, if you don't remember where those colored eggs are, then you lose the game, right? But if I forget to pay my taxes, then I'm in a whole lot of trouble with the IRS, and the same thing is true when it comes to the Bible. There are certain things that if we don't remember them, as far as I can tell, the consequences for not remembering those things are relatively minor. So if you don't remember the names of Jesus' 12 disciples, or if you don't remember the order of the books, or even what those books are in the Bible, the last 12 of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, if you don't remember the itinerary of Paul's third missionary journey, I think the consequences are, are relatively minor. It's not that big of a deal. And yet, if we forget the gospel, it has serious consequences, massive consequences for us. This is one of the reasons why the Bible talks all the time about the importance of remembering. After this sermon, we're going to partake in communion. Jesus tells us to do so in remembrance of him. It's a tangible way to remember what he has done for us. There are a number of songs in the Old Testament that talk about the importance of remembering how God has been at work in the past. Psalm 78 is a song all about remembering how God worked in the past so we can be confident in how we are to respond to him today in the present. The book of Luke tells us why God actually sends Jesus to the cross for us. Luke tells us that it is in remembrance of his mercy. We remember, we are called to remember because God doesn't forget. He remembers certain things. He remembers to show mercy to us. And there are massive consequences if we don't remember the gospel, if we don't remember that salvation comes by grace through faith. This is why the Bible calls us to 
remember, just as it does in this morning's passage. I mentioned we're in the book of Jude, Jude chapter, I guess there's only one chapter, Jude. We're going to be in verses 5 through 8 this morning. As you're doing so, I just, uh, or as you're, as you're getting ready to, to look at Jude, I want to just remind us of, because we, we weren't together last week, remind us of where we are in the book of Jude. So Jude is written by Jesus' half-brother. It is um, written about 30 years after Jesus' resurrection. Last uh, time we were together, we saw the heart of Jude's letter, kind of the, the thesis statement or the main argument, the reason why Jude is writing is found in verse 4 of the book of Jude. There, Jude says that he is writing to encourage the church to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. But just like we looked at last time we were together, this charge to contend for the faith isn't so much to contend with those who are outside of the church, but instead to to contend for the faith inside the church with those that are actually taking advantage of the grace of the gospel. When people will say, and when we say it in our own lives, that grace, this free gift, means that I can therefore do whatever I want with my life. And two weeks ago, we saw that even though this book was written thousands of years ago, it's so applicable for us today, isn't it? That we see in our own hearts as well this temptation to see the message of the gospel, to ignore the ethical implications of Jesus saying, if anyone would follow me, they must pick up their cross and do so. That they must die to self, that we must die to self daily. The ethical implications of the lordship of Jesus for the church today We all too often have this tendency to forget or to ignore or to take advantage of the grace of the gospel. That's foundational to this morning's passage. Here, this is a text. um, We're getting into what I would consider some of the more confusing parts of the book of Jude. Jude is a a confusing book. It's one of the reasons I think that that, um, it's not often taught or or preached upon. So what I want us to do is kind of just lay out the structure of the book of Jude for the next few weeks um, for us to kind of just get an understanding of that. But what we're going to see here is this is part one of the first of two sermons in the book of Jude. All right? So Jude, in his letter, he only has 26 verses, but in this letter, he writes two sermons, and in those two sermons, he actually, uh, he, he does the same thing in both of them, and we're going to see this this morning. He, he quotes from the Old Testament, he references the Old Testament for some illustrations of how God has been at work, and then he, he, he illustrates it with this um, reference to something that is outside of the Bible. That's, uh, that's what we're going to look at next week. This morning's passage, Jude uses three Old Testament examples to prove the importance of why we must remember God's word. That's going to be our roadmap for, for this morning, verses 5 through 8. We're going to see three warnings from Jude's Bible, from the Old Testament. Three warnings from the Old Testament, and after each of these examples, he is he's very clearly making one point, one thing abundantly clear, judgment. We're talking about judgment here. Judgment awaits those who don't persevere in the faith. Those who, who associate with the church but do not persevere. Judgment awaits. This is, this is his strong warning. He says, I don't want you to forget this. I want you to, to look back at the Bible, how God has been at work in the past, so that way you can understand how God still is at work today. Judgment awaits those who don't persevere in the faith. 
Remember, this isn't primarily concerned with those who are outside the church as much as it is with those who are inside the church. Jude's primary concern is for those who claim the name of Jesus, but through their words and through their actions, they reject Jesus' lordship over them. In other words, not persevering in the faith. Now, before uh, we, we do jump into this text, I want to uh, kind of throw up, let's go ahead and throw up that structure, Ryan, so we can see the structure of the book of Jude. So, right here, we have verses 3 and 4. This is kind of his, his main pointer. He's saying, this is why I'm writing. Verses 3 and 4 is Jude's main points in the letter, and remember, this is his point to contend for the faith. After that, we, we switch to verses 5 through 10. This is kind of his first sermon that is specifically applying this charge to the issues that are facing the church. And then later on in verses 11 through 16, we have his second church about the, the concerns that are facing the, the church. So this morning, we're going to look at the first half of his first sermon, verses 5 through 10. We're going to look at 5 through 8. Next week, we're going to look at the second half of his first sermon, and then we'll do the same thing in the weeks following with the second sermon. Now, Jude's Old Testament examples, his use of of extra-biblical material, they're complex. Um, That's what we're going to do. We're just going to look at verses 5 through 8 this morning. Overall message should be relatively clear for this week and next week. Judgment awaits those who do not persevere in the faith. Let's go ahead and uh, follow along as I read aloud Jude verses 5 through 8. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, That Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under, under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, Serve in his example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Let's pray. Father, as uh, we approach the weighty topic of judgment this morning, we, uh, we ask for your help. We plead for your help. We ask that you would give us eyes to see the truth of your word We ask that you empower us through the Holy Spirit to respond with obedience to your word. We ask that you would allow this word to sink deep into each one of our hearts so that we can respond joyfully to it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Jude uses three Old Testament examples to kind of prove his point here to warn the church of the dangers that are facing them. The first one is found in verse 5 focuses on the exodus and the generation that experienced the exodus salvation in the Old Testament. Verse 5, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. There's a lot going on in this verse, isn't it? First, I I just want to point out, this is the introduction to Jude's three examples here in the first half. He's saying, now I want to remind you something that you already knew. There was something that you did know, you you fully understood, and yet at some point along the way, you've forgotten it. Maybe not fully, but you have forgotten this. This is the heart of his charge in these verses. I want you to to remember what you have forgotten. And this 
implication of this verse here is that forgetting truth, forgetting the Bible, will have consequences for us. This is, this is what is at the heart of the call to remember how God has been at work in, in the past. It's what that song we, we just sang talks about. The fact that the God who was is the same God who is today and the same God who will be forevermore. So let me give you an example of this. This past week, my, my sons and I, we were reading through um, this, this story of the Bible. It was a, it was a book based off of uh, the story of Daniel and the lion's den. And as we're reading through this, um, well, let me take a step back. My oldest loves superheroes. He absolutely loves superheroes. And for the last year or so, we have had this discussion multiple times about how the fact that superheroes are not real. If you didn't know that, I'm sorry. They're not real. And we've gotten to this point where he'll be talking about how cool this interaction, either something that he, he uh, has created with his toys or something that he's imagining in his mind or something he read in, in a book, uh, he, he talks about this interaction and then he'll get done and then he'll, he'll th- there's just like this resigned look of almost sadness on his face. And he'll say, Dad, superheroes aren't real, are they? And so it doesn't surprise me as we're reading through this story of Daniel and the lion's den and, and we're, we're getting to this point about Jesus' miraculous intervention on behalf of Daniel, how he, he stops the mouths of these lions, how, how he, Jesus is at work in this supernatural way. It doesn't surprise me that when we get to the end of this book and my son says, Dad, this is all just pretend, isn't it? Because everything that he has seen so far in his life, as he's talked about superheroes and this this supernatural stuff that's going on, he just recognizes it's too good to be true. That that that's not the way things actually work. And so then that led to this really good conversation, actually, about the historicity of the Bible. Don't use that word with a six-year-old. It talks about how this stuff actually did happen, how they, we can actually look to, to when they happened, that the story of Daniel and the lions then took place about 2,500 years ago. Why we have good evidence or good reason to believe why the stories of the Bible are true. And it's a really good, healthy discussion. Probably the first of, of many on this topic. And I, I got to thinking afterward that we, whether we realize it or not, have a tendency to be exactly like my son. That we can look at the story of the Bible and we might not ever vocalize it and say, these stories are made up. But we, we can have this tendency to think that the way God worked back then has nothing to do with the way God works today. That there's such a difference or such a distance between then and now that while we would never vocalize it, Oftentimes in our hearts, we just say, well, that's, that's kind of cool. The story of, of David and Goliath, the story of, of Daniel and the lion's den. But that doesn't have much of an impact on me today. Now, I want to be careful here. In one sense, that is true. The Bible, a lot of it is descriptive, meaning it's describing what happened 
and it's not prescriptive. It's not prescribing what will happen if you do certain things. And yet at the same time, those stories in the Bible remind us of what God is like. The description of God in the Old Testament is the exact same description of God in the New Testament is the exact same description of what God is like today. And Jude, as he is writing here, he's, he's quoting from the Old Testament because he wants us to know that if there is a disconnect between, well, that's how God worked in the Old Testament, or, well, that's how God worked in, in the first century. That's not how God works today. We have to be very careful because the God of yesterday is the God of today and will be the same God that we will stand before in the end times. And so Jude, as he is writing to the church, as they're facing this disconnect between, well, that's not really how God does things now because of the gospel, and they have this mistaken view of what the gospel is. Jude writes in in verse 5, Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who do not believe or did not believe. So what Jude is saying here, he's he's, he's talking about one of the most important moments in Israel's history in the Old Testament. God delivers Israel out of slavery to Egypt, and it's a story of salvation. They call it the Exodus, and it serves as the greatest example of God's power, of God's saving work on behalf of people for centuries, so that for the next centuries, for the next millennium, the people of God are, are looking forward to this future salvation, this future hope. And they refer to it as a new exodus. This is what the prophets use, this language. Centuries after the exodus. Centuries before Jesus. They're they're looking forward to this day where God is going to do what he did in the past again. And then we get to the New Testament. In the New Testament, in the moment of Jesus' transfiguration, Jesus actually describes his own salvific work on the cross as an exodus. As this great salvation, just like the salvation that took place millennia ago. Jesus, in the transfiguration, he's talking to Elijah, he's talking to Moses, and notice what it says. Behold, two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, is probably what your translation has. But literally, this word is exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. I love that example, that phrase, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That Jesus' salvation that he is going to accomplish is exactly like the salvation that took place in the Old Testament, except it's greater. What's probably startling to us from the book of Jude is not that Jesus is the one who saves us in the second exodus, but actually that he's the one who saves us in the first exodus as well. This is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. If you want to know how God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, is at work before the incarnation, before the Gospels, before the New Testament, we have passages like this that tell us that Jesus is the one who saved people in the first Exodus. We don't have time to go into all of the significance of this statement, but but notice how powerful, how important this is. But again, this isn't Jude's main point. Jude's main point in verse 5 isn't to say Jesus saved people in the Old Testament, and that's really, really cool. No, that's not his focus. His focus comes in the second half of his statement. Let's read verse 5 again. 
Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. So he kind of says that like it is some sort of given, right? Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So Jude's concern here in the context of the importance of remembering is not just that Jesus was at work in the Old Testament, in the Exodus, but what happens afterward? What happens afterward to those people that he saved? Perhaps you're familiar with what happens in the wilderness after the Exodus. Not only does Jesus save them, but he also makes them his people. He gives them the law and says, I want you to follow me, basically. And just a side note on that, I think a lot of times we as Christians, we can have this tendency to see that there's this disconnect between how God works in the Old Testament, how God works in the New Testament. When, when the Old Testament, we, we have this tendency to, to see it as though God is saying, hey, you know what, I want you to do this and then I will, um, I will love you, basically, or then, then you'll be saved. So follow the law, then you'll be saved. But you look at the story of the Old Testament and what takes place First, God saves people out of Egypt. Then he makes them his people. And only after that does he say, follow me, or be obedient, or here are the Ten Commandments. It's the exact same thing that he does in the New Testament. God saves a people. He makes them his own. He actually gives them a promise of a future home, just like in the Old Testament. And then after that, He says, now I want you to follow me. There are some implications, there are some obligations of being my follower. But enough on that. Back to the story. God saves people through these miraculous signs, miraculous wonders in the Old Testament. They almost immediately complain. They almost immediately grumble. They even try to return to Egypt. It's just this disaster situation. The Old Testament books of Exodus And Numbers tell us the story and story and story again of the people complaining that God's salvation for them isn't good enough. And it's really quite sobering reading. Things come to a head in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 13, Numbers 14. God tells the people, hey, I promised you this land. I want you to go scout out the promised land. But after the people do that, they come back and say, you know what? There is no possible way that God is going to be strong enough to let us take over that land. And so they say, we're not going in, God. You can't do it. We can't do it. We're staying right here. And God is understandably upset. Numbers tells us how God responds. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. You see what Jude's doing? In Jude 5, Jude gets to the heart of the problem. The people who refuse to believe God. Notice Jude 5 again. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed who? Those who did not believe. This is what Jude is focusing on 
here. He's pleading with the church to remember that God doesn't take lightly those who would choose to associate with him, whether that's through church attendance or by affiliation, referring to yourself as a Christian, and yet at the same time refuse to believe him. He doesn't take it lightly when we refuse to believe his power, his ability to save, his ability and his commitment to keep his promises. And so Jude here is reminding the church, he's charging the church, remember what awaits those who remain in unbelief. He goes back to the Old Testament and says, hey, you know what? Remember what happened to those who Jesus saved out of, out of Egypt and yet destroyed them later because they did not, did not believe him, did not trust him. And he's saying the exact same thing to the church as, as well. That, that Jesus... Those who, who associate themselves with the salvation of Jesus and yet refuse to follow him, refuse to believe him. Judgment is coming. That's the first Old Testament passage that Jude refers to. We'll go a little bit quicker now. Second one is found in, in verse 6. Uh, if you thought that, that was a little hard to follow, um, man, verse 6 is a doozy. Uh, verse 6. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains until, under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So there's a lot of debate about what exactly is Jude referring to here in verse 6 when he mentions these angels who did not uh, stay within their own place, uh, own position of authority. It could be a, a reference to the rebellion that takes place before Genesis 3 where uh, a host of heaven rebels against Jesus and, and, and God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Satan and his angelic hosts, they, they rebel against God. It's more likely, however, that Jude is, is referring to the very odd events of Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 4, or 1 through 4. I'm going to go ahead and, and read. Uh, that passage, because it is, is, it's an odd passage. It's, it's hard to understand. It takes place right before the flood, and the author of Genesis, he he's trying to tell us about the awfulness of the human condition. He says this, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So there's many ways people have tried to interpret this passage. Um, the, the interpretation that I, I liked the best, and... Um, would have argued for um, until about a week ago is this, that sons of God refers to the line of Adam through Seth and the daughters of men refers to the line of Adam through Cain. You look at Genesis 4, you look at Genesis 5, you see this really sharp contrast between the godly remnant of Seth's line and the wickedness of Cain's line. It's a very strong contrast right before this takes place in Genesis 6. And yet, you look at the beginning of verse 7 here. 
And we haven't gotten to verse 7, but I want you to, if you have your Bible open, look at the beginning of verse 7. It starts with these two very crucial words. It starts with the words, just as. So some connection here is taking place between what Jude is referring to in verse 6 and what Jude is referring to in verse 7. Uh, Jude, verse 7, is all about Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, we, we are going to look at that in a little bit, but this, this connection is made even clearer by this word likewise that you see later on in verse 7. So there's this connection here between what Jude is saying about in verse 6 and what he also says in verse 7. That there's some sort of similarity here between the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the, the angels that are being referred to here in verse 6. So apparently what has taken place is that some of the former angels who have rebelled against the sovereign Lord now begin to lust after human women and they attempt to intermarry with them. That's what Genesis chapter 6 seems to be describing. We don't know the specifics of how this happened. Uh, maybe they possessed men. Maybe it was some other way. Frankly, the how is, is unknowable and, and can oftentimes be unfruitful. But what is perhaps even more surprising is Jude's application of this angelic sin from Genesis chapter 6. Jude doesn't focus on the desires of these angels. Notice instead what he focuses on. Let's look at verse 6 again. Just the first half. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. So, so it seems, just like Jude in verse 5 is focusing on this lack of faith, now he is focusing on this rejection of authority. They follow their passions rather than their Lord. And in doing so, they reject his authority. And Jude seems to be saying, if anyone else does the same, if you follow your passions rather than the Lord Jesus, then whether we, we admit it or not, we are guilty of a form of rebellion. R.C. Sproul, the late theologian, once referred to sin as cosmic treason. And that's exactly what it is. It's saying, God, I don't want to follow your way. I don't want to follow the rules and commands of your kingdom. Instead, I want to go my own way. And Jude reminds us of what awaits those who reject the authority of Jesus. It's what he says at the end of verse 6. They have been kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. What a sobering reminder for us of the judgment that waits for those who rebel. The danger of rebellion, the danger of rejecting the authority of Jesus, of not listening to the Lord. Back in verse 4, Jude says that this is one of the primary dangers facing the church, is this temptation to reject the authority of Jesus. He says this, that you would, these are, there are people in your midst who are denying our master, our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in, this, in the face of this temptation to live as though there are no consequences for your actions, to just follow your desires, whatever they may be, Jude warns the church with a second reminder. Remember what awaits those who reject Jesus' authority. What a sobering word. 
Remember what awaits those who reject Jesus' authority. That there is judgment that awaits those who persevere in their unbelief, just like the Exodus generation. And there is judgment that awaits those who reject the authority of Jesus. And the implication is clear. Judah is saying, don't be like them. Don't be in that party. Don't be a part of that group. Remember the God of the Old Testament and how he acted then. And he is the same God today. One final warning from the Old Testament that Jude gives us in verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The name Sodom and Gomorrah, um, infamous, even for those who don't know anything about the Bible, we don't have to look any further than just the English language itself, right? The word sodomy finds its roots in, in the events of, of Genesis 18, Genesis 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. But at the same time, um, Jude's, Jude's message here is to remember, so it would be wise for us to remember exactly what takes place in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. Genesis 18, this group of, of angels appear to, pa- uh, to the patriarch Abraham, and they tell Abraham of this divine investigation that they are going to partake in because of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they give the, they give the reason why in Genesis chapter 18, verse 20. Why? It's because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. And we're not told the, the specifics of what what their sin actually is, why this outcry against them is great. We turn to Genesis chapter 19, and we see a very corrupt picture. This group of angels, they arrive in Sodom. They encounter Abraham's nephew Lot, and Lot, following the customs of that day, he opens his home to these travelers, but news of these travelers has has spread throughout Sodom. And so in the evening, there's this crowd outside of Lot's door, and they're asking to gang rape these two travelers. Lot, of course, refuses, but he doesn't do so in the most admirable of ways, and a riot ensues. The angels intervene, and then they save Lot. They rescue Lot and his family from Sodom. God destroys Sodom. God destroys Gomorrah. God destroys a couple of the other cities in this valley as well, and there's this great debate about what exactly the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is, which I always think is really funny because it's like, well, what isn't? their sin. You look at at Genesis chapter 19, you read that chapter and you just want to take a shower afterward because of how awful things are in Sodom. Ezekiel 16 tells us that uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were guilty of pride. They were guilty of not taking care of the poor, so that's one of the reasons. Judges chapter 19 draws connections between what takes place in Sodom and Gomorrah and what takes place later on in the people of of Israel and seems to indicate that there's this sexual depravity that is now at the the heart of what is being focused on here. That's what Jude picks up on as well. Verse 7, I'm going to read this again. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality... 
and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So first, notice that Jude explicitly references the sexual immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah as the cause of God's judgment upon them. Remember the context of Jude's letter. This makes a whole lot of sense. Jude is referring to this, this group of people in the church. They're taking advantage of God's grace. Uh, they're saying that because God has given us this free gift of salvation, you can do whatever you want. All the way back in verse 4, that meant there, there was a group of them that saw grace as licensed to sleep around and licensed to do really whatever they wanted. Now, a little bit more specifically, notice that this phrase here in verse 7 that, that we have in our Bibles translated pursued unnatural desire uh, in the ESV. Um, if you have a footnote in your Bible, you'll notice that this phrase literally means, or literally says, different flesh. And this is, again, really important for us to see the connection between verse 6 and verse 7, important for figuring out what Jude has in mind here. Just as the fallen angels of Genesis chapter 6, they're pursuing these unnatural sexual desires, the same thing seems to be the case in Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, really compelling case that Jude isn't just referring to sexual immorality in general, but he's referring to this uh, homosexual urge from the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. But I think it'd be completely incomplete to say that the heart of Jude's point here is to talk just about homosexuality. It's certainly not less than that, but it is a whole lot more than that as well. Remember the why of Jude's letter, all the way back in verse 4. Verse 4 says this, why, why am I writing this, Jude says. Well, here's, here's why. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into what? Sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. This word sensuality here is the lens I think that we should look at the rest of the book of Jude, including here in verse 7. What does Jude mean when he refers to sensuality? Well, uh, a Greek um, dictionary defines or describes this word sensuality in this way. Sensuality is a lack of self-constraint, which involves one in conduct that violates all the bounds of what is socially acceptable. All right, so it could refer to um, sexual passions, and it can refer to a whole lot more than that as well. In Jude's day and age, and for centuries before, the Greeks used this word sensuality to refer to a lifestyle of excess, particularly in the areas of sex and in the areas of food. And I think that's really instructive for us as we look at the the heart of Jude's warning here in verse 7. He's saying that if you are controlled by pleasure of any kind, it doesn't matter what it is. If it is sex or food or money or comfort or entertainment, thousand different gods vying for your affection. Judgment is coming. That if Jesus is not the Lord of your life because your life is controlled by some other God, then judgment awaits. That's really his focus here in verse 7. Remember what awaits those whose God is pleasure. We are created as worshipers. 
we will never not worship something. And if we're not worshiping the Lord Jesus, there's something else that controls our affections, that has our worship. And what Jude is saying here is remember what awaits those whose God, those who worship pleasure. That's the overarching message of Jude 5 through 8. Jude uses the Old Testament to remind the church that the God that they worship, same God that we see in the Old Testament, exact same God here. And we would be absolute fools to use the grace of God as an excuse to say, well, that was, when, that was then. The God I worship now is different. That's really the heart of verse 8. Verse 8, if you notice, there's um, a connection between every single thing in verses 5, 6, and 7. It's, it crops up again in verse 8, referring to these people that are now in the church. Um, in like manner, these people. Jews applying the Old Testament to their specific situation. Um, really pretty easy to follow. It says, defile the flesh. Well, that's the exact same issue that we see in Sodom and Gomorrah, reject authority, goes with the fallen angels of verse 6. Blaspheme the glorious ones, a bit harder to follow. But the New Testament actually um, tells us that um, there was this common belief um, in Judaism that angels were actually used by God to bring the law to the Old Testament people. So um, Stephen, he's, he's given this sermon in Acts chapter 7, and he says this, You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So there was this common belief that the angels, glorious ones, were the ones who had given the law. And so we see there's this connection here between the giving of the law and the Old Testament Exodus generation and angels. And what seems to be saying here is that you're blaspheming angels by rejecting obedience to God's law, which they have given to you on behalf of God. And so there's this connection here. Jude's pleading with the people of his congregation. He's pleading with us as well to remember the warnings of God's word. To remember the warnings of God's word. To remember that judgment awaits those who do not persevere in the faith. To remember what happens throughout the ages to those who have rejected Jesus both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and throughout the age of the church. Don't reject Jesus because of unbelief. That if the, the, the circumstances of your life, they don't line up with what you see God promise in his word, that doesn't mean that God is not able to keep his promises, that God won't keep his promises. We must continue in belief, trusting that God is a God worth trusting. Don't reject him and his authority. But Jesus is not just a savior. He is also a, a Lord and a king. And Jude says, remember those angels. Remember what happened to them when they rejected his authority. And don't reject the authority of Jesus by worshiping false gods. The gods of pleasure that are everywhere in our culture. Especially for us. Here in the United States, we are surrounded by a pantheon of false gods, of gods of pleasure. And Jude says, don't turn your back on the Lord to worship those false gods. Remember the warnings of God's word. 
remember that judgment awaits those who do not persevere in the faith. We'll look more at this passage next week. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask that you would help us to be people who take seriously your word and take seriously how you have been at work in it. Forgive us for the ways that we can have a tendency to say, well, that was then and this is now. Help us, God. Help us to see the areas of our lives where we reject your authority. Help us to see the areas of our lives where we worship false gods of pleasure. And God, we ask that you would forgive us for our unbelief. Thank you, God, for the mercy of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.